<clears throat> for those of you around my age, and as I look around the sanctuary, I don't see many older than me. I can recall my early school days as a lad being taught reading, writing, and arithmetic. Oh, if only such subjects were emphasized today, but we will save that discussion for another time. I do remember, however, a component of our education which required us to memorize certain important facts, dates, events, speeches, mathematical tables, and yes, Bible verses. I well remember my third grade teacher, Mrs. Tinsley, on the very first day of school, after we had all settled into our desk, she came up to the front of the room, she clapped her hand, she said, boys and girls, when you leave my class this year, you're going to know two things. You're going to know your multiplication tables, and you're going to know some Bible verses. And we did. We did. And of course, that was back in the 1950s. But what a wonderful teacher she was. And I remember her name. I can remember every one of my teachers because they had an impact on my education. We can still tick off some of those important memory assignments, such as, and if you know the answer, just say it out. When did Columbus discover America? 1492. What date was our country founded? July 4th. 1776. What is six times six? 36. Five times four? Seven times nine? 60, and so on. We also memorized the pledge to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And we sang the national anthem. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. And in the Bible, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Or perhaps the 100th Psalm, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he. And so on and so on. And even the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. But for most of us, the first passage that we committed to memory was the Ten Commandments. The commandments were given by God through Moses, as God's emissary to address man's relationship with God and man's relationship with his fellow man. Rules to live by. Today, memorization is not emphasized because technology has brought answers to our fingertips. 
And while you and I may agree or disagree with the modern methods of teaching, I am convinced some memorization is good. For we hold many ideas, information, and important events close to our hearts. The Ten Commandments served the Jewish people well from the time of Moses, right through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and were adopted into Christian theology to be taught right through the present time. But I submit to you this morning that there is an 11th commandment given to us from God Almighty through his emissary, not Moses now, but through his son, Jesus Christ, who was empowered by God with all authority in heaven and on earth to draw the people unto himself, and that commandment is the Great Commission. Today we come to the wonderful commandment of the Great Commission of Jesus Christ, that part where we hear Christ's very clear directive to do what? To go. To go. Now with the Great Commission, we see that this is in fact a commission which by definition means empowered to carry out a command. Christ is telling us to do something. Now bear in mind, it's not the great suggestion or the great option. It's not something that Christ puts to us that we can either decide to do or not to do. He simply says, go. Go. These are the final words of Jesus that Matthew records in his gospel. The words are given to us for our comfort and also our instruction from our Lord to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Let us hear these words with the fullness of the authority that were given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here we are in the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew, and in a sense, the book ends having come full circle from its beginning. How many of you remember how the book of Matthew begins? Well, it goes something like this. Begins with the most stirring aspects we ever find in Scripture. This is how it begins. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob. Okay, 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 fear not. I am not going to go through all of the begotitudes. But I just want to remind you that this genealogy that Matthew begins with addresses the Jews that were concerned about the genealogy and the credentials of Jesus. That's where Matthew begins by responding to those concerns of the Jews about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the immediate context for which the Gospel of Matthew is given has to do 
with the relationship of Jesus to David and most specifically to Abraham because this genealogy traces the ancestry of Jesus not all the way back to Adam as Luke did when speaking to the Gentiles, but back to Abraham, the father of the faithful. And Abraham is the one whom God called out of a pagan land and made a sacred, holy covenant with him, which then took hundreds and hundreds of years to be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Now let me take a moment and look at this promise that was made to Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis. And this is what it says. And the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, away from your family, away from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now listen. And he said, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in the original covenant promise that God made with Abraham, he promised to bless Abraham and bless all those who would bless Abraham. And how the multitudes of people in this world would be blessed. Indeed, as is written, all the nations of the world would be blessed through this covenant promise. God said, I'm going to make you a nation. And from that nation, the whole world will be blessed. Now, fast forward to the New Testament and the narrative account that Matthew gives us of the life and ministry of Jesus. Notice how Jesus barely traveled 100 miles from the place where he was born, an area about the size of the state of Maryland. So the focus, you see, was very narrow, principally to the Jews, principally to the natives of that land. And so where is this universal blessing that is promised to Abraham? Jesus didn't take the gospel to all the nations of the world. He left that task for his bride. He left it for his church. And the moment that Jesus ascends into heaven, at that last moment, as Jesus is standing there on the Mount of Ascension with his 11 disciples, they ask him, Lord, Lord, is, is now the time? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus appears somewhat frustrated and somewhat irritated as if he wants to say, how many times do I have to tell you? You see, at the eight of his post-resurrection appearances, Jesus told his disciples to go and tell other people that he had risen from the dead. Eight times. Go and tell them that I have risen from the dead. On five of those occasions, he commissioned his disciples to go even to the remotest parts of the earth, preaching the good news of his death and resurrection and making disciples. But he didn't do that. 
No, he didn't. Basically what he says is now is not the time. And what that time is, quite frankly, none of your business. But let me tell you what your business is. Your job is to be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice how he works outwardly from Jerusalem in concentric circles. You start here, you wait just a little while for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and you shall receive power, and then you work your way out. And as soon as you get empowered by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, you reach out beyond the city to the region of Judea, but don't stop there. You then go on to Samaria. Yes, I said Samaria. And after you finish in Samaria, you keep going and you keep going. And what then? Well, the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, then goes to Judea, and then goes to Samaria, and then comes what? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who takes the gospel throughout the known world to Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, Athens, Rome. Now the church has moved beyond the borders of Palestine into the whole world. This was the promise that God made to Abraham. And this is the mission that God's son gives to his church at the end of his life on earth. So with that perspective in view, Let's now look at the final verses again in Matthew chapter 28. Notice how in verse 17 it says, and if you have your Bible still open, just sort of look there. Notice how in verse 17 they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Where else prior to this did his disciples worship him? Oh, they listened to him and they took direction from him, but where did they ever worship him? Well, that's so important. They simply didn't just listen or follow him as disciples, but they worshiped him. Just as the women had done at the feet of Jesus, they worshiped him as God. They worshiped him as God. The deity of Christ was not a proposition invented in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea. It was clearly established in the New Testament and the behavior of his followers confirms this. Because if he is not God incarnate, then this act of worship would be idolatry. They would be worshiping a creature rather than God. But without rebuke, Jesus receives now the worship of his people. And then the scriptures go on to tell us that some hesitated, or your version of the Bible might say some doubted. But there was some hesitation, just as we know in the account of doubting Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, that he could not accept the risen Lord until he felt 
the scars in Jesus' nail-scarred hand. You see, there was hesitation. Hesitation, you see. Before we look at the rest of this text, I must ask you, is there any hesitation among any of you this morning? Do you hesitate? Do any of you hesitate for just a moment? There must be people here today who hesitate even as I speak. So I would ask, are you a doubting Thomas? Do you need visible proof? You might be thinking, well, I think Jesus is the Son of God. It is possible he really did do all those miracles. I want to believe, but, you know, I'm, I'm just not certain. You, you teeter back and forth. But my hesitant friends, let me ask you, when faced with danger, when you're in a precarious situation, and especially a life or death instant, instance, who is the first person's name we call on? Oh, God! Oh, Jesus! When airplanes are about to crash, cockpit voice recorders reveal time and time again the last words of pilots as they call upon God, as they call upon Jesus. And the hesitation is no longer there. Think about it. Ever hear the old adage, he who hesitates is lost? Lost. Lost. When we are lost, that is not the time to hesitate, but the time to embrace, to embrace Jesus as Lord. Thomas got over his hesitation when Christ appeared to him, didn't he? He exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He hesitated no more, but he began to worship him. And Jesus spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What Jesus is saying here is that he, and he alone, is the supreme apostle of the Christian faith. If you go into any Sunday school class or Bible study group and ask who was the greatest apostle of them all, I dare say most would say Peter, perhaps Paul, or one of the other disciples. Many would point to scripture to prove their point or make their claim, but they would all be wrong. None of them could even come close to the greatest apostle of them all, Jesus Christ. The word apostle means one who is sent to speak on behalf of the supreme ruler, the emissary of the supreme ruler. Remember Moses delivering the Ten Commandments as God's emissary? And in Christianity, the greatest apostle is Jesus. So when Jesus said, when the Father, sin, when the Father sends me, so send I you. All authority from heaven flows through Christ Jesus and those whom he will send to represent him. 
When we speak of the Great Commission, again, it is not the Great Suggestion. Let me repeat that. It's not the Great Suggestion or the Great Idea. It's not an essay on manifest destiny. It's a mandate from the King of Kings who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And we say that Jesus is the Lord of our church and that we believe in him. And that means we must obey this mandate that he gives. Now he says so much here. First of all, he says, go, go in light of this authority I have just declared. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. So do you hear the mandate? He says, first of all, go. Second of all, make disciples. Third of all, baptize. Fourth of all, teach. So it is go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Many times in the New Testament, those that are burdened and heavy laden are told to come to him. And he says to those that are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls you rest for your souls. I will forgive your sins. Come to me. I will give you life. Come to me. I will give you eternal life. Just come to me. I will raise you to everlasting life. Come. Come. Bring your troubles. Bring your needs. But come. Come to me. And when we do come to Jesus, what does he do? He says, go. He says, go. When we do come to Jesus, we simply want to bask in the light that we are now enduring. We want to remain with him in his presence. But what does he say? He says, go. You can't just come to Jesus without going from Jesus. It's just that simple. Have you ever noticed a new convert to Christianity, one newly baptized in the faith? Notice the euphoria that surrounds them. How happy, how changed, how new they feel. Most are ready to take on the world and share what they now have with their friends and relatives. That is why Jesus says, Go. Don't waste all that euphoria on simply hanging around, basking in the afterglow of your baptism, but go and put this newly acquired passion to work. When we go, the rewards can be humbling, touching, and life-changing. I recall a staff member working with Franklin Graham's Christian Relief Organization, Samaritan's Purse, who was sharing with a group of supporters about his experiences and seeing the look of sheer joy 
on the faces of children when receiving a Christmas box donated by members of Christian churches. Our church here, of course, is included. And organizations throughout the country. And he says, we can't forget the, the hands of goodwill outstretched by families in need following a, a natural disaster such as flooding when they're on a rooftop waiting to be rescued or some other calamity. All help and assistance is given freely in the name of Jesus. And then he goes on to relate how on later visits when they go back the following year and they're again giving out those Christmas boxes, some of these children cannot speak English, but they do remember two words. And with outstretched hands, they come up and they go, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, what a blessing it is to help those in need. All in the name of Jesus. Franklin Graham's father, the late Billy Graham, who led evangelistic crusades for many years, was asked once if he ever felt anxious or worried about anything in his life, and he responded, oh yes, oh yes. When I think of all those people who come forward to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I become anxious and worried about the follow-up for them as new Christians. Who is nurturing them to deepen their faith and stay the course? And then go and do the same for others. It is a mistake to think the goal is to make converts. We must go further with converts to ensure they are grounded in the faith and are taught well in order for them to become disciples. When Jesus says go, we immediately think of world missions with the disciples of Christ going into the nations of the world, some of which are not very hospitable to Christians. We think how difficult it is for them to give up all the comforts of living in a free society and being able to enjoy all of the amenities which enable us to live in relative comfort and safety. This is always brought home to me when I write a check each month to a missionary family, my wife and I, and other friends and relatives, some of whom are here, have supported for some 25 years. They come to the U.S. every two years to meet with supporters and update us on their efforts to spread the good news of the gospel throughout East European countries. The Samanov family currently lives and works from their home in Budapest under the auspices of Crew, or Campus Crusade for Christ in Orlando, Florida. This devout Russian couple meets with student leaders on various college and university campuses in the countries that made up the old Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc nations with huge Muslim populations. We have shared their photos and stories of heart-wrenching ordeals to simply get Bibles into some of those countries. Then meet in homes to begin small groups with believers to share the good news with their neighbors, friends, and college students. And get this, and how Muslim women will come in secret 
to learn more about this Jesus they've heard about and the love they do not find in their own faith. Think about how easy it is for all of us to drive from state to state without being concerned we might be arrested for carrying Bibles or other Christian tracts or material with us. But for the Simonov family, they send us regularly emails asking for our prayers as they seek to cross borders, not knowing if they will be arrested for sharing Christ with others. Friends, when Jesus says go, it does not have to be in a foreign country. And you do not have to give up your standard of living in order to carry out the Great Commission. It can be as simple as sharing your faith with your neighbor or family member. It can be the nurturing of a new Christian, which caused Billy Graham to worry if the converts are getting the support they need to grow in the faith. Go means to do just that, whether next door or halfway around the world. Go. And what is the next thing he says? Go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples by helping believers to grow in their faith. Read the Bible with them. Share in service to them. Practice your faith as an example to them and ensure to encourage and support them. Make disciples. Thirdly, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an outward public sign to others that your life has changed and you will live for Jesus Christ. In Reformed theology, baptism is a sacrament signifying the baptized person's union with Christ or becoming part of Christ and being treated as if they had done everything Christ had. Sacraments, along with preaching of God's word, are means of grace through which God offers Christ to his elect. Fourthly, teach. Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Teach to become grounded in the faith. Dig into the scriptures. Dig into the scriptures. You pull this book out. Do it every day. If you only read one verse at a time, pull it out and read it. I can tell you this. Whenever you read this Bible, you can read the same verse over and over and over. And every time you read it, you will glean something new from it. Wherever you go, whatever border you cross, Jesus said, I will be with you. The most incredible promise ever made. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can you imagine what his disciples thought? Their hearts were broken when Jesus said, in a little while I will be leaving you, but I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you 
but nevertheless, I'm still going to be here. Well, how can that be? You will leave us, but will still be with us? Well, it means Jesus is with us, will always be with us, no matter where we are. He is with us. He is in this sanctuary this morning. And you know something? Our faith in him confirms that. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Your faith confirms Jesus is here among us. The Ten Commandments from God through Moses and the Great Commission from God delivered by God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, who will always be with us through the end of the age. The Great Commission, or the Eleventh Commandment, when followed, it ensures the good news of the gospel will continue till the end of the age. What joy, what peace, what comfort that Jesus will always be with us. In closing, I would like to share a very short story with you which bears repeating since I last shared it with you back in 2005. So some of the longtime members of the church may remember it, but we've had a lot of people come into our congregation since 2005, so this may be new to you. But um, this story shows how sharing our faith can take on many different facets depending upon the situation. The story is told about a guest speaker at a church service one Sunday evening when after a few hymns were sung, the pastor introduced his longtime friend whom he had asked to speak. With the introduction out of the way, an elderly man arose and walked to the pulpit, and this is what he said. A father and his son and a friend of his son were sailing off the Atlantic coast when a fast-moving storm approached and blocked any attempt to get back to their marina. The waves were so high that even the father, although an experienced sailor, could not keep the boat upright. And the three of them were swept into the ocean. The old man hesitated for a moment, making eye contact with a couple of teenage boys seated right down front, who by this time had begun to show a little interest in the story. The old man continued. Grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. To which boy would he throw the other end of the line? He only had seconds to make a decision. 
Now listen. He knew. He knew his son loved the Lord and was a devout Christian. And he knew his son's friend was not. The agony of the decision could not have been matched by the torrent of the waves. As the father yelled out, I love you, son. He threw the line to the other boy. By the time he pulled his son's friend back to the capsized boat, his son had disappeared beyond the raging swells into the black of the night, and his body was never recovered. Now, by this time, the two teenagers were sitting straight up in the pew, waiting to hear what the speaker would say next. The father, the old man continued, knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, and he could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into an eternity without Jesus. Therefore, he sacrificed his son. How great is the love of God that he should do the same for us. With that, the old man sat down as silence filled the sanctuary. And within minutes after the service ended, the two teenagers were right up his side. What a nice story, one of the teens began politely, but I don't think it's very realistic for a father to give up his son in the hope that the other boy would become a Christian. Well, you've got a point there, the old man said, glancing down at his worn Bible. A big smile broadened his narrow face, and he once again looked at the boys and said, it sure isn't very realistic now, is it? But I'm standing here today to tell you that that story gives me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his son for me. For you see, I was his son's friend. And I've spent my life sharing the gospel. I have spent my life sharing the gospel. We never know how God is going to use us. But if he is knocking on your heart, never, ever 